Welcome to Playmakers, the game industry podcast. Whether you work at a studio, publisher, service provider, or startup, this is the podcast that will give you all the information and entertainment you need to succeed in the game industry. Who am I? Just your friendly neighborhood veteran designer and producer, Jordan Blackman. In each episode of Playmakers, I go to work uncovering insights, tactics, and know-how from a wide range of game industry luminaries. My goal? To help you win the game of making games. Are you ready? Then let's begin. Welcome back to Playmakers Podcast. This is season two of Playmakers Podcast coming at you. I'm very excited about it. Let me tell you what we have in store on this episode. Emma Jane McKinnon Lee. She is a space engineering dropout who is working at the nexus, at the at the crux of fashion, of Web3 technologies, aka crypto, NFT, and gaming. She has a company called Digital Axe, which is a digital fashion NFT company. They have their own protocol and marketplace and coin. And she also does work in esports. So she is really living at the edge of the Ethereum gaming web three crypto side of games. And, you know, I got to know her and see that she is, you know, hustling and grinding every day in this brave new world. And I am excited to share with you her perspective on the value of all this stuff towards gaming. How does this affect the game industry? How does this affect what we do? I know that there's a lot of people in the game industry who are skeptical about the role of crypto games and NFT games and what's going on with decentralized apps and all this stuff. So if that's you, then you are going to get some perspective. I'm not saying you're going to be convinced one way or another, but you're going to get perspective from someone who is living and breathing and innovating on that edge. And that's what we have with Emma Jane McKinnon Lee. Now, before we get to the interview, I just want to ask if you would please consider giving the show a subscribe, giving the show a like, giving the show a share. Do you know someone who should be listening to this episode? Do you know someone, as I do, who is maybe working now in this new space of gaming meets NFT, meets crypto, meets value uh, and scarcity and Web3 and all these new technologies. If you do, then they probably need to be listening to this particular episode. So go ahead and send it their way. You'll be doing me a favor and you'll be doing them a favor. So that makes you pretty cool all around. Don't forget, if you're interested in sharing what you want on the show, you can shoot me a email, jordan at brightblack.co. That's jordan at brightblack.co. And with that said, I'm just excited. I'm excited for this interview. I'm excited for season two. I'm excited to be here for you. We have a lot queued up and it's good to be back. It feels good to once again be back. So with that said, let us get into this episode with Emma Jane McKinnon Lee coming at you right about now. Emma, welcome to Playmakers. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting for me because you originally reached out to me and I realized very quickly that you were way plugged in to the world of crypto and NFTs and were really excited about the connection to games. And I just felt you were the perfect person to dive into this with. Yeah, it's exciting. I remember, I think it was last year, wasn't it? And that was before all of the kind of NFT craziness and rush. So it's like a completely different paradigm that we're referencing it now then um yeah like November 2020 I think it was or something like that I, I wouldn't have even really thought that by you know 2021 that everything would be completely different in, in the way that NFTs and that are viewed and, and the importance for the future so really excited to do this from you is the first time I heard the term NFT ah okay 
That's good. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I've, I've already learned a lot from you and I'm excited to learn more today and have the audience learn as well. How did you kind of get into this space? How did you become expert in this area of crypto and NFT? Sure. So my background is actually mechanical and space engineering, but then I dropped out halfway through to go full time into Web3 and blockchain. Um, just really aligned with the broader movement of the ecosystem and the values um, and just incredibly excited by the future. I've been in the space for about four years at the moment, and I was in the space from both a financial perspective, part of a hedge fund where we focus on tail risk hedging and all for the crypto markets, and really from a technology perspective as well, where I worked with the Dubai government on how do you actually implement blockchain technologies into industries and what does that look like from the perspective of actually enabling ecosystems and sustainability and, and growth because Dubai itself was a really interesting region to work with because they have a lot of challenges with just sustainability of the population when it comes to 90% of their population being expats and how do they maintain retention. So really became very familiar, I'd say, with not just the technical side, but more how do you actually apply this in, in real world use cases and, and situations and make sure it can be done in a way that actually generates value for the people interacting with that technology. So became interested with that. But then it was last year that I was looking really more on how does Web3 intersect with gaming because I really have a passion for the gaming industry and I believe that it's definitely the future when we talk about kind of these terms of the metaverse or immersivity and, and what does it look like being kind of a digital native. Gaming is like the fundamental backbone to that. So um, yeah, with my vision and, and really strong alignment with Web3, I really saw a lot of crossovers. So started diving more into this and then became particularly interested with the topic of digital fashion and how this kind of relates to everything. How does a digital identity within a game and kind of your skins or what you're wearing relate to that? And then, yeah, I guess I just saw that NFTs from kind of my background in Web3 would be the most suited distribution channel for digital goods moving forward, being able to kind of back that um, authenticity and transparency behind that and just kind of started building from there. And that's where I, I founded Digitalex, which is all really sitting at that intersection of digital fashion, gaming, NFTs, and, and crypto. That was a lot. And I want to dive into all of the um, kind of core technologies that we want to make sure the audience understands. But first, let's talk a little bit about Digitalex to make sure that people understand kind of where you're coming from and what you're up to. What is it and how is it relevant for game industry folks? Sure. So Digitalex, it's a protocol built on top of the Ethereum network and also Matic network, which is like a sustainable layer two solution to Ethereum. And what it allows is for digital fashion designers to create 3D digital fashion skins with in-game utility. They don't have to be as well. And they can list them on our marketplace as NFTs. And then players can come on and purchase these digital fashion skins and actually take them and their NFTs and take them into different web to gaming environments and through kind of the architecture that we have set up it's able to spawn in this character's nft skin that they've bought into the game and they can start playing and then start engaging in what we call casual esports battles where they're able to uh, score on a leaderboard and then actually get paid out in cryptocurrency for engaging in these casual esports gaming battles or just kind of earn an income through play so a kind of completely decentralized ecosystem where it's all built on top of native Web3 infrastructure. But really the broader scope of what we're doing here, it's all about how do you bridge and onboard players, creators, designers, developers into Web3 through Web2. And what does that look like really through injecting, I'd say more opportunity and freedom for 
these kind of stakeholders in the ecosystem through that because gaming industry today is really built on a lot of precarity. So a lot of uncertainty, kind of I'd say just where do I get my next meal if I'm going into this industry, particularly as an indie developer or designer. And so Web3 is all about how do you kind of create an ecosystem between designers, developers, players, and then um, allow them new access channels to income, to just being able to create a more sustainable livelihood and career. So there was a lot there, and I have a feeling that a lot of people in my audience did not understand things like Ethereum, layer two scalable solutions. So I wanna make sure that we kind of go through the basics so that the audience can kind of understand some of the, some of the deeper things. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about what Ethereum or what sort of a, any sort of smart contract system is. I don't even know if we need to get to the layer two solution part, but, but we can talk about that briefly. But let's just start from the basics. You know, you're someone in the game industry, you know crypto is a thing and you know NFTs are like collectibles. Where does Ethereum fit in? So Ethereum is, you can think of it kind of like the, a new internet in a sense. So we had, um, we have now like the internet, so web two really is what it's referred to. And Ethereum is like an upgraded version of the internet that allows you to actually properly exchange value and ownership over the internet. Because um, if you think about the current internet today, it's all kind of copies in a sense, and it's all centrally controlled. So really every product, service, or interaction that you have, it's all going through a central stakeholder. But what Ethereum allows for is this kind of upgraded or new internet or Web3 internet that is completely decentralized. So when you're creating transactions on this new internet, and that doesn't have to mean transactions from a financial point of view, it can mean from a information sense. So transferring information from one point to the other, the consensus itself is achieved through different nodes of the network coming together. And those nodes are completely decentralized. So it's not like you have a gatekeeper saying yes or no, that this transaction is valid. And I will verify that anyone that has a Web3 enabled device, so say like you can think of it like an application in a sense, kind of on your phone or your laptop, you're able to participate in this ecosystem and verify this information being transferred. Let me try to rephrase that to make sure that everyone's kind of with us and make sure that I've got it right. So if you think about the way we are buying and selling things over the internet now, we always rely on some third party. It's Amazon, it's Apple, it's someone who kind of manages a ledger behind the curtain. And meanwhile, we have open protocols like TCP IP and HTML, but those aren't secure enough to transact in, in real value. So Ethereum creates an open protocol that doesn't need a specific authority, but is secure enough to allow transactions of real value. Exactly. Yeah. So it's completely transparent as well. And really what that means is the ledger itself can be viewed and verified by anyone. So you can just kind of go on today to specific interfaces and you're able to view the whole transaction history for Ethereum since it, it founded. So it's all about creating an open, like you said, an open protocol, transparent protocol. And then the verification itself is not handled or not determined by centralized gatekeepers, but rather completely decentralized. Got it. And as a holder of Matic myself, I think I understand that one, which is Ethereum has some problems dealing with how popular it's become. And while they're working on that, there's this new system that helps speed it up and then settles down into this Ethereum protocol. 
Yeah, well, I think, look, I know that it, it kind of goes a little bit more technical, but layer two solutions are really important, particularly people that are coming into the space that they're really important to talk about because there's a lot of negative connotations when people associate blockchain or Bitcoin or Ethereum because they're probably hearing a lot about the sustainability side of things or, you know, hearing these crazy stories that there's huge energy usage. And that's because the consensus mechanism that actually verifies the transactions on the network or through all these decentralized nodes it's known as proof of work and proof of work requires energy output to actually come to consensus of what transactions in the network are valid, what are invalid and kind of reconcile the information. It does require energy output. I mean, the numbers aren't exactly correct and there's a lot of renewable sources that are actually providing that. But layer two solutions are a more recent kind of advancement because Ethereum itself is actually in the process of upgrading to Ethereum 2.0. And what that means is they're actually changing their consensus mechanism from proof of work, so requiring that energy output, to proof of stake, which is 99% more energy efficient. But that takes a long time and it will still be about two years before we'll see that fully come to fruition. But in the meantime, there are these layer two solutions that kind of operate on top of the Ethereum network that are able to verify and validate the transactions using proof of stake. And what that means, it is a much more sustainable solution. And then what, like what you mentioned, the idea of the network becoming overloaded because it's so popular and the way that Ethereum runs, there's a maximum of around 15 or 25 transactions per second, which makes it incredibly slow. And the way that Ethereum works as well is you have to pay the network to actually push your transactions through. And when the network gets busy, these you know payment kind of gas fees is what they're called. They can go absolutely through the roof. So you can be paying thousands of dollars for maybe a couple of hundred dollar transaction that you're trying to put through. So these layer two solutions also make these gas fees from thousands of dollars to a couple of cents. So yeah, it, it's really important as well to kind of consider that in terms of thinking about the blockchain and the architecture of it. Right. And these sound like, you know, a lot of technologies have trouble scaling at first and have to overcome scaling issues. These sound like scaling issues to me. Would you say that's a fair? 100%. Look, it's growing pains of operating on the bleeding edge, which is really kind of what Web3 is. I mean, we're kind of speaking now, like really breaking it down. It's still incredibly difficult the onboarding side for how people can come into the industry because it's so new and there's so many kind of things missing or caveats or things you have to be really aware of and and different moving and dynamic parts so it's really just at the stage kind of where we are with the, the technology where everything's on the bleeding edge and it's the growing pains to kind of get to the next stage of it. Got it. Okay. And I think, you know, putting myself in the shoes of the audience, I think that they may be wondering right now what this has to do with the game industry. So, hey, we make games and people are able to do transactions inside my games. Where is the problem or how do these technologies improve upon what we were already doing in our games? Sure. Um, Yeah, well, to answer that question, I think it's really important to kind of consider and, and first look at when we think of you know, the gaming industry and kind of a bit what I was touching on before of where is the future of this industry or where is it going? And a lot of people talk about a crossover within society or just you know the global economy in a sense where we'll become much more digitally native. Not that we aren't already now, but there will kind of be this transition into full immersivity where a lot of us will end up, whether that's through 
VR or AR or kind of a hybrid mix of both or whatever that interface looks like, a lot of us will start interacting, transacting, communicating really in a fully digitally immersive environment. And it's kind of this you know, term of the metaverse, which gets thrown around a lot and it really came from Snow Crash and the novel there. But when we kind of look at that side, then value becomes incredibly important because just like today, when we're existing in this physical environment, when we communicate, we transact, it's all about transferring value through a network. And so when we think about them doing that in a digitally native way, and really a whole global population transitioning into that, then the way that the current Web2 system works, which is really about kind of a gatekeeper model where it's centralized parties that are able to control the transactions, they're able to control how that information is transferred or what validates the information transfer. That becomes a bit of a problem because when you know the, the idea of really being able to have more opportunity or more access to a lot of these ecosystems, well, if it's completely centralized control, then it's a really extractive model, which is what we're experiencing today. And so Web3 is all about, and blockchain, crypto, NFTs, it's all about decentralizing that access. It's not about breaking down walls completely, but it's being able to give people different and better keys to be able to access a lot of these opportunities. And so the gaming side is very interesting to this because gamers today, when we think we go and we play in a game, the value in a sense that we, we spend time playing in that game or that the characters and the stories that we build, it's all locked within one silo or one sandbox ecosystem. And this kind of doesn't fit with the digitally immersive version of the future of us being able to go in and interact and then take the value that we make or create within one environment into another. So what blockchain and NFTs and crypto allow, they allow for that decentralized ledger in a sense so that we can actually go into a game and say interact with content or you can think of it maybe even like DLCs which I know a lot of kind of the audience be very familiar with you think about currently we go into a game and say if we transact we make a purchase or we unlock a DLC that purely stays within that game environment and as soon as we leave or we delete our account or developer decides to delete the account that value disappears because it's on one central ledger but if that's able to be distributed and decentralized across multiple ledgers, what that allows is when we go into that game and say we have that DLC, we're able to actually verifiably own that. And so no matter even if that game kind of disappears or we decide not to play for a number of years, that content in a sense or value is sitting on our own personal ledger as well. And that adds a whole different layer of investment value for a player that this content now doesn't just exist within that ecosystem, but it's kind of fully interoperable across a whole digital environment. So I want to do a lot of rephrasing today. I really want to make sure that everyone's following along. And the way I'm thinking about what you said, what it got me to kind of think through is like, there are models where some company owns the whole thing, right? You go into World of Warcraft and, and it's all run by Blizzard and anything you do is managed by Blizzard and so on. Then there's like the marketplaces we've sort of gotten used to in the game industry where it might be run by Apple, but there are these third parties who are able to sell things and make money, but they're basically at they're at the whims of Apple. You know, there's there's this third party who's controlling it. So even though, yes, you know, people can play a role and it's and even run their entire businesses inside, it's still basically owned by a single organization. And then what you're talking about when you talk about the metaverse, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is sort of a public space, like a virtual public space. How would you do that today? You, you 
kind of can't because we feel like someone needs to be in control to manage just those sorts of value interactions that you were talking about earlier. So now that we have something like Ethereum, you're saying we can build virtual public spaces where anyone can own things and it's all managed by this distributed ledger. I think, and maybe look even one to even break it down a little bit more. This might be a terrible analogy, but um, if you think about even kind of when we put our money in a bank today, it's really the bank kind of is controlling on their ledger how we can spend and use that. I mean, we often can kind of withdraw and, and deposit as we like, but then when we run into a problem sometimes where the bank says, hold on, actually, no, you can't use that or you can't make this transaction, it turns into a big hassle and it's kind of like another party is controlling the money that we earn or the value that we earn. But then if you think about kind of cash, well, we can go and use kind of cash anywhere. I know we're, we're really moving into a cashless society, but we don't need to have, if we have it in our wallet, we don't need to have someone else saying, okay, you can use it here or you can't use it there. So you can think of like what blockchain and the and Ethereum and that are what they provide is being able to use kind of digital value in the same way that we can use physical cash, where it's like we don't have to actually have a third party or a centralized provider or controller saying, okay, yes, you can do this, or yes, you can't do that with it. So it's like the next iteration and stage of really value and information transfer and being able to fully own that in these virtual spaces. That makes sense. And so if we're building these kind of public virtual spaces where we can trade back and forth, I think one of the questions that is natural for a game developer to ask or someone in the game industry is what happens, and this, this may actually be an interesting way to get into some of what you're doing with your organization, what happens when one of these games ends? Because this virtual thing you bought, typically, you, even if you have it or you have some, it's written in some distributed ledger that you own it, doesn't mean you can use it anywhere else, right? Like when someone owns something in Fortnite, it's not so simple as just like showing that they own it in somebody else's app. So how does this get practical sort of in the near term uh, with those sorts of challenges? Really good question. And I mean, I think it's, it's all about interoperability. Um, and that's, I guess, what how a lot of value is kind of generated. If it's just if a piece of content can only be used within one specific application, then it's not so black and white, but it really has less value, I guess, than say if that piece of content could be used across 100 applications or, or be completely interoperable in many different digital or immersive environments. And there's a few challenges there. I mean, number one is technically, like you said, you can't just kind of take a piece of content or a 3D object from Fortnite and then drag and drop that into GTA or drag and drop that into Among Us or, or you know, another digital environment without things completely breaking or fidelity and the information itself being lost and just uh, a lot of problems. I mean, it just cannot be done at the moment at, with that kind of ease. And so one side is really looking at the, the technical scope and seeing what, what kind of is required to allow more dynamism when we're dealing with transfer of content. But I think that a bigger side to that, I mean, not that the technical is not important, it is, is really the model itself and the kind of incentive model of, well, why would a developer want their content that they created in their environment to be transferable by a player, say, into another environment? Because it's really, it's an interesting one because if you're a developer, well, particularly with the Web2 landscape that we're in today, it's all about how do you control the choke points of value? Because that's what it is. It's an extractive model. If you don't control these choke points of value, 
then you cannot generate value. So the mindset is, well, hold on, I really want to get players, say, into my ecosystem and then keep them there. I don't want them going and kind of going into another game or another environment. Right. People ask, what's the moat going to be in your business? Or, or they want you to maximize the switching costs. Yeah. And that's the way that Web2 operates. It's like, that's what makes sense. It's like, that's what you have to do to gain value. And this is the really interesting thing with Web3. It's not a extractive model. Instead, it's a generative and it's a circulatory model where the value becomes more valuable in a sense, the more that it can be transferred throughout the network. And what I mean by that is that if you are a developer in a sense and say you have content within your ecosystem, your content actually becomes more valuable if it's able to be transferred out of your environment into many different environments. Because now that the player actually has more skin in the game or more stake in a sense of owning that piece of content, not just within your game, but on this kind of more broader ledger, in a sense, which really is what an NFT allows or an non-fungible token allows them to kind of own unique content on a broader ledger and that you know, ownership to be transparently verified and, and attached to them or their cryptocurrency wallet. It becomes more valuable if they can take that content and then into another environment and then do something with it in there or have some kind of application utility with another environment. Or maybe go into another environment and then even kind of generate more value from it. And those application and utility kind of layers don't have to be all the same. So it doesn't have to be like, okay, I have a skin in Fortnite. And when I take that into GTA, it has to look exactly the same. This is the kind of really amazing things with what NFTs can allow for more that commercial interoperability that maybe it has a different application within GTA. So instead of it being this like rendered, skin maybe if someone you know that player kind of owns that skin and it's recognized and in gta maybe it allows them a boost or a power up in gta for, for something else or within a quest or a mission so that's i guess one different way of looking at it that web3 is about backing more value behind these assets and the value actually comes from the more usage that it can have without the entire ecosystem not just within the sandbox environment got it Every time there's a big paradigm shift in platforms, the winners in the old platforms don't want to make that shift, right? They sort of get dragged kicking and screaming. And, and often that's an opportunity for a lot of new players to come in and succeed. I mean, mobile saw a wave of really big publishing and development companies get built for exactly that reason. Do you think that's what's going to happen to kind of build out this new distributed platform? Yeah, I mean, again, it's gatekeepers, of course, it's a, a threat to them. They don't like it because if you're a gatekeeper in the current Web2 environment, you benefit from it being extractive. You benefit from the way that it's set up. And I think this is really interesting for the gaming industry because although it's such a great industry, there are so many heartbreaking, in a sense, caveats to it of if you're a developer in the industry, like what is expected of you to survive? industry i mean you really have kind of like two routes you have number one okay go and work for some of these bigger publication studios or development studios like blizzard or, or what else i mean epic a little bit different because tim sweeney i think has a, a bit of a different vision for the future and the open source nature of it but you either go or ea for example electronic arts you go in and you kind of slave away in these bigger studios and, and you know i work to the absolute bone and the just standard of what is expected of you and how you were treated 
I think is just very concerning or you kind of stick to your values of, okay, I don't want to do that. And I want to kind of keep some of this charm of what I grew up thinking the gaming industry would be or why I want it to work within the first place. But you know, for a lot of us, it comes from in your childhood, having this imagination and really deep connection to, wow, what gaming kind of allows us to, to do and interact with and the stories that we can co-create. So setting up an indie studio, which for many, it's so like the uncertainty in where do I get my next meal? Where does my next paycheck come from? How do I differentiate myself within this market? It's incredibly, incredibly scary. I mean, even kind of these platforms like Steam and itch.io, the exposure that they provide for an indie dev it's another name in a database, in a sense, you're getting listed and compared against across other, you know, the other hundred thousands of games out there. So the way that the system is set up now is really not about being supportive and helping developers come to the ecosystem and create a sustainable livelihood in a career. And it's all a, a completely precarious in the way that it's set up, which is, again, just complete uncertainty. I'd be interested to hear how sort of web 3.0 fixes that. I mean, a lot to me, a lot of that is just the nature of the beast, because, you know, if you want to be a musician, that's precarious. If you want to make a living as a musician, if you want to be an actor, that's precarious. I'm curious how, how this technology changes that and if it also affects those sorts of industries. Yeah. So it, again, in music, it's the exact same thing. And web three is, is disrupting that at the moment tremendously and it's not it's not about removing walls or gates because we can't live in a society where it's just like a free-for-all and there's no kind of differentiation between different access points but what it does allow it allows easier access for anyone with literally a web3 enabled device to come in and be able to access opportunities without there being a centralized gatekeeper saying yes or no you can do this or you can't do that or you can access value through here but because of this, this and this, you can't do that. I'm trying to imagine what you mean, though, specifically. Like when we're talking about game development, do you mean someone can, instead of doing that, they can make virtual goods and sell them in this new open world? Or do you mean that like people will take on contracts to code in some sort of bidding system? Like what, what, are you, what exactly are we talking about? Not so much for that. I mean, one good way of looking at it, I guess, is the commercial models themselves are very different. So, for example, NFTs, what they allow, like I was kind of saying before, it's these different mechanisms for being able to actually transact value and create value, which allows a lot more for the actual developer rather than how the current Web2 industry, which is really, you know, it's like climbing a mountain in a sense and even insurmountable obstacles for a lot of them of how do I actually create a sustainable livelihood through this. So I guess the interesting thing to look at, I mean, Web3 isn't about creating an ecosystem where it's like, Anyone can do anything um, and there's absolutely no consent and that anyone can come in and there's, there's no competition and you're guaranteed kind of this like equilibrium of, of distribution of value. It's not really so much about that side of things, but what you can think of it, it's about allowing easier access and more dynamic access for all of us and miniaturizing these walls. So as developers or players or designers or just creators, whatever we kind of want to name ourselves, we can come into this environment and not have to rely on a centralized gatekeeper model of verifying what we can and we can't do or how we can actually create value. And to add a little bit more weight to that of, of what I really mean more tangibly is that the amazing thing that Web3 allows, it allows for people to actually kind of spin up programmable and customized incentive mechanisms in a sense. And that's the big key here, because if you think about 
the, the current Web2 environment for, say, indie devs or just, again, developers or designers in general, they have to go by what is already there to create value for themselves. What are the current routes or um, roadmaps that they can take? And they're very limited. Like, for example, I was giving that example of Steam. Okay, if you're a developer, what's really one of your pathways right now? You go away, you create your game, try to differentiate it, make it cool, something that people will like. And then say you go listed on Steam and you're hoping that maybe, you know, Web2 social media and that you'll get traction or that you'll hit it big and then um, suddenly create this huge player base or fan base around you. But that is like, that's a lottery ticket again. So what Web3 allows in kind of a different version to that, it allows you as a developer to actually create a personalized incentive mechanism around your content, backing more value behind that content. So it gets more opportunity for when players, when creators and that, when they come and interact with it, they're able to really gain more tangible value to stay in that ecosystem and then kind of have this liquidity within it of a give and a take. So that's really the biggest difference, I would say, that Web3 allows. It's not about cutting out competition. It's not about, you know, just kind of having a, a free-for-all, but it is giving developers and in particular, you know, sense kind of game developers and that tools and to be able to spin up these um, programmable incentives that can suit their player base and their content creator base yeah, in the best way possible. An incentive system like, hey, if you make new spaceships for our game, we will give you some of our in-game hard currency that we sell or some, something like this. Is this the kind of thing you're thinking of? That's one thing. And that goes down a whole other rabbit hole of modding and how mod culture and modding is so fundamental to the gaming industry and something that myself and Digitalex were really supportive and also just it's exactly kind of what the message that we're pushing forward as well but the metaverse is all about kind of supporting sub content creators or the remix creators around an original piece of content of how do you actually generate more novelty and engagement so that's one thing what you're saying which is okay this kind of content creation automated supply chain which is something that i definitely agree with and i think that is the future as well how do you incentivize that like even if you think about a big problem faced in the game industry today, particularly with like DLCs, is about how do developers like without going through like this whole crunch time every single day get out and ship content and streamline the shipping of content faster to their player base. Well, having an incentivized supply chain on that is something that can radicalize and revolutionize that whole you know, subcomponent. But not only that, this is where I guess the NFT side comes in, that that itself is an incentive mechanism for players. It's a customized incentive where, again, when you're a player, instead of this being just content that I'm interacting with, it's actual value and monetizable value now that I can generate, I can create, I can store, I can trade, I can transfer. Um, that's really what NFTs is as well. It's kind of the, the most you know relatable definition is it's about being able to create value for other people that they can take outside of that that game or content environment, which is, again, it's an incentive mechanism in itself. You know, here's here's something I wonder, and this is this is a little bit philosophical, but, you know, when people tell me I, that they're an anarchist, I always think to myself, aren't we already living in anarchy? And this is just what happens. You get governments, you get companies, like, this is anarchy. And anarchy leads to some amount of order. Could we end up in 50 years with a distributed system, but yet people have built these little fiefdoms within it, and we're kind of back where we started? That's a great question. And I actually think that where we're at right now, it's on kind of a crossroads where 
a lot of what we're seeing in Web3 isn't actually Web3. It is Web2 in a Web3, very surface layer code. It's not authentic, really, is what I'm trying to say, to what Web3 is really about, which is true decentralization. And it's true kind of these open protocols where anyone can come and interact and, and generate value or kind of spin up these personalized valued realms. But the Web2 that we're seeing today, it still is very much large entities coming in and kind of creating an ecosystem where they're saying, hey, this is open. But then when you really look into it, well, it's actually not open. It's all the things that Web2 is, it's just you know kind of plonked on a blockchain and using blockchain technology as that underlining layer. So that's a very interesting point. I mean, even when we kind of look at the blockchain space today, I mean, when there was this whole, you know, in the past you know, few months, the, the BTC, all-time high, Ethereum, all-time high, a lot of money and liquidity moved into the space. And a lot of traditional VCs came into the space and kind of started acquiring Web3 startups or, or companies. And then it was just putting them in the same structure. If you look like more from like a, an equity point of view of, hey, well, we're going to give you some you know, liquidity so you can run your, your company or your, your entity or protocol. Um, but we're going to own maybe 50% of that token, or we're going to own 50% of kind of like the quote unquote stock in a sense in that that company. And when you think about from that point of view, that's not Web3 because what a Web3 ecosystem would look like, it would be really crypto native and it would be say that token in a sense or that incentive could be owned by anyone and it's distributed fairly between everyone that decides they want to be an active participant in that ecosystem. So I think that that is the biggest concern and something as myself being a builder in this space and just living in it day in and day out, it's not good, actually. It's something that we should start looking at more as well. How do you actually be authentic and native to Web3? Because if that is the case and we do do it right, then the idea of kind of it being, you know, centralized providers coming in and, and like taking full market share and it being that same gatekeeper system, it, it cannot happen. The incentives won't allow it to happen. But the way that we're going now, it's not Web3. It's a surface coding of it. I'm thinking of like Doge and XRP and all that stuff. Exactly. I mean, XRP, for example, again, it's not actually really Web3. Doge is a little bit different. I mean, that's kind of funny because it's a, it really is. It's like a meme coin. There's not much else to it. But we can see, I mean, again, kind of look at Elon Musk and his involvement there. That's, purely, that's a purely manipulated market in the sense of like the price action of doge to tweets and all of this the reason i think it's not truly decentralized is because apparently there are a handful of wallets that hold like a ridiculous percentage of the total supply so to your point about like a stock if you own a certain amount your your level of control is too high for it to be considered decentralized exactly and i think this is why i mean myself why i, I really align with why digital we decided to build on ethereum as well is because ethereum is despite a lot of its flaws and caveats still at the moment, and like we discussed earlier, these growing pains, it is the most authentic ecosystem, developer ecosystem of really being true to what Web3 is and allowing people to come in and kind of transact and interact with it, where um, not just the token of Ethereum is so globally distributed, but also the governance is, the participation is, um, you know, kind of the, the active builder ecosystem is where we have other blockchains like again not to kind of go too technical but probably a lot of developers have heard of it a newer blockchain called flow especially game developers right because that's the dapper tech exactly and they're a big web3 kind of blockchain gaming company but that itself 
it's not a Web3 infrastructure. It's actually Web2 because there are VCs holding the token and, and backing it. it. It's not actually a distributed system and it's got a whole vesting period with unlocks and all of this. So yeah, it's really not authentic to what Web3 is. And I think that that's a really important distinction to make of a developer that, that wants to come into the space. It's deciding, well, okay, we're, we're still in a transition from Web2 to Web3 and that's not going to happen overnight. But it is important that when you come in, that it's about doing it in the best way that we can at the moment and, and choosing the better option of building native to, to Web3 infrastructure. Makes sense. It also makes sense that companies are going to want to start off doing the sort of quasi Web3 stuff like Flow. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily wrong of them. It helps get the process going, you know, arguably. And it needs to happen through those baby steps because there's only a certain amount of control people are willing to give up now. I completely agree. I mean, well, I, I agree to most of that. I mean, I, I do think there are decisions that could be made more consciously aware. I think that the people are consciously aware, but it's that same thing where they're willing to speak about taking step and kind of the positives of web three and that they're for it but when it comes to really doing that well it actions is very different and yeah it, it's not that it's an easy thing but i think that the some of the biggest stakeholders they need to take more responsibility in what they're speaking to actually really live by that as well which is about coming in for an exit which i think is a really important thing because when we think about web two tech and kind of you know the internet bubble and era well, a lot of that was all about how do people just get in for the exit, in a sense. That was it was all setting it up for. Like if you think about a lot of these startups, well, it's setting it up, they take money just so I can have a guaranteed exit, in a sense, and kind of double my wealth down the line. And Web3, particularly the core builders at this stage, it's not about being a stoic. It's not about saying, well, hey, I should come in and, you know, just give away value. It's not about that because you, you need to earn value for yourself. You need to be sustainable and you need to kind of live a good life, definitely. But it's about at this stage, if you are a core builder in the space, I think that there needs to be, you need to take more responsibility that what you're building is actually something that goes by for a much bigger mission than just your kind of piece of content or project or protocol or company. It's really about setting forth a ecosystem and a standard that then is going to revolutionize and radicalize the way that we live today. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I'm curious because I've had a lot of a lot of the recent kind of inbound people who connect with me and are interested in working with me are doing something in this gaming NFT space. So it's clearly blowing up and probably probably in a, in a way that is mixed between you know, what you're calling authentic and not. I'm curious, you know, for folks who are out there thinking about doing something in this space, do you have advice or things you're seeing that you think people, mistakes that you think people are making that you want to kind of get out there? Because there may be people listening who are considering or working on a project like this. What would you want to tell them? Oh, yeah. So I guess to keep it more specific to the game dev side, there's a few things there. I mean, creating a really truly you know, web three game, it's not easy because you have to now really think about a whole nother layer of, like I was saying before, of incentives and how do you actually create an ecosystem of liquidity, of value transfer between the core development team, the modding ecosystem, your player ecosystem, your, your you know, fan base in a sense. And I would say that the best example out there is actually it's a game, it's called Skyweaver and they are a blockchain game, but they've been in testing. I think it's for over a year even. They've been just like, they haven't actually 
gone fully into Web3 of like dealing with like cryptocurrency in a sense. And then over a year of just testing and with like small test group of players where it's like what you operate on like a test network. So they're still able to practice all the transactions in a sense, but it's not real value that it's transacting with. And so I would say the best advice for developers and that out there is to do it right. And it kind of comes back to my authenticity point of view that it's not something that you just want to go into overnight because of a hype or a craze. You really want to take a bit more time to understand why Web3 is actually important for the bigger mission and for the future and what that can actually enable. And then whether that's doing a bit of a hybrid Web2 and Web3, which is very much what Digital X is about helping developers with as well and kind of this whole Esper casual esports ecosystem. It's about how we plug in Web2 digital environments, Web3 of blockchain and NFTs and allow developers to leverage off that. But I would say more so, yeah, it's about really testing out your incentive mechanism and the programmable incentives that you're making because um, if you get that right, then when you go into kind of live production, you are going to be sort of tenfold against all of the other, again, more like hybrid or, or inauthentic ecosystems out there where it's really just about coming in for the exit or being more of like trade, trading card and, and trade mechanics, which is really not what this is about. And we think as well about how do we create content that people really engage with um, in a more metaverse context as well. That's great. I appreciate that. And um, I definitely think that a lot of people are looking at this as like, oh, it's a blue ocean. I better get it out as fast as possible. So I think that's a really interesting perspective you bring on that, Emma Jane. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what Digital Axe is doing and how it can help studios who maybe are already going down this road or who are thinking about it. Sure. Um, so what we have, I mean, digital fashion is a, a core part of what we're doing. And um, I won't go kind of more into that, but but skins and like self-expression and identity. These are really the values that we see as so kind of intrinsic to building out metaverse and how people actually create value for themselves within that, where it is a lot about the identity side of things and how they can shape and mod and form that. But I guess more specifically as well of what we're building out now and, and what we've launched and released it's called Esper, and it's part of the Digitalex ecosystem. And it's the first actual uh, indie and modded casual esports platform. And what I mean by casual esports Imagine an app on your phone where as a player, you could log on any time and you could choose your favorite content and then start playing. And when you start playing, you actually are able to earn an income or a living through this through a native cryptocurrency or token. And um, how we work is we actually work with a lot of the modding ecosystem and also indie developer ecosystem where they can actually plug in their content into our Esper uh, casual esports platform that then allows designers to list NFTs or digital fashion and skins on our marketplace. Players can come and purchase these and take them into these different developer content ecosystems and modding ecosystems. And when the players take them in-game, again, through our kind of architecture, they start playing, they start earning income, and the profits from this whole ecosystem and liquidity of the token from the players purchasing these items from the marketplace actually also get distributed to the developers and the designers as a whole kind of profit distribution where they're able to earn an extra income or living from having their content or their game as part of our ecosystem. So it's something that doesn't interfere with their current Web2 in-game economy. That's completely separate, but you can think of it like another solution where they're able to provide an extra layer of utility, access, and novelty for their players by plugging into us and then leveraging all the value of NFTs and, and crypto and, and blockchain 
without actually having to go and like integrate kind of Solidity or Ethereum in a sense into their content environment. Okay. And I don't know if this is a competitor of yours, but is this something like Chain Games and what, what they're doing or is this a different kind of system? No, I think so Chain Games is very, is it like yield, but in a sense, um, it's a different because we're all about how do you provide an extra layer of utility and novelty and really about from a player perspective as well. How do you allow them to level up from like amateur to pro in this industry? Because as a player, we talked about the developer point of view of how hard it is to really make a sustainable livelihood and level up in the gaming industry. But from a player point of view, it's just as hard. You either just try and stream on Twitch for 24 hours a day and gain a lottery ticket or you give up. And so what Esper is all about is this same kind of ecosystem where they can plug into and they can start engaging in these casual esports battles and playing and earn an for themselves that is a separate novelty from the current games kind of um, economy which is something that we're really highlighting as well that and again it's coming back to how do developers really onboard and how they do that in a transitional process well it's not about just cutting out what they have now and saying okay let's just move completely into to web3 but how do you still maintain that authenticity but do it in, in stages where they can have kind of a layer two system on top of the content that they already have which is something super important because it's not about just bulldozing what's already there. Is wagering part of this? Like do the do the competitors put something on the line and then if they win, there's a earn out and if they lose, they don't? Um, good question. So I wouldn't really call it more about like the wagering as a definition, but definitely it requires skin in the game and how that works. The players actually purchasing the skins themselves or the digital fashion from the marketplace. And this is like their in-game identity markers. And it's actually how... From an architecture point of view, we actually authenticate and verify the players in-game. It's actually through their NFT skins. So the players are able to actually wear these in-game, and that's how we determine as well, okay, what are their winning streaks or where are they sitting on the leaderboard and what do they get paid out? But it's also, I guess, a much bigger utility for the player in kind of building out their metaversal digital ID through fashion and through digital fashion. Got it. Okay. Well, is there anything else you want to share as we kind of round down the interview? I think that they're the main points. If anyone is interested in any of this stuff, I'm, I'm always more than happy to chat because it's a bigger mission that it's all driving forth and something really excited. And once, once you go down the rabbit hole of Web3, it really is like a whole interesting forest of different areas where you start realizing, wow, this, these kind of NFTs, what I was doing as like JPEG images or whatever, selling for like $69 million. It, it's so much more than that. And uh, it's really about creating these ecosystems of access opportunity for everyone. So where can people reach you? Best is probably my Discord. So um, if you go on DigitalX website, D-I-G-I-T-A-L-A-X.xyz, um, which is a bit of a, a mouthful, you'll see all of our social links and you can join our Discord channel. And then from there, you'll see kind of me as one of the moderators and you can DM link within within the general chat or send a message in the general chat and, and yeah, get back to you and, and start speaking and, and set up a call or whatever is best suited. Emma Jane, you are an absolute dynamo. It's been uh, fun watching you make stuff happen. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Jordan. Another episode of Playmakers Podcast is in the bag. And if you want the show notes with all the links wrapped up with a bow for you, you can find all that at playmakerspodcast.com. That's playmakerspodcast.com. 
If you're interested in giving some feedback on what you'd like to see on future episodes, you can also reach out to me there. And in the meantime, if you want to support what we do, the way to do that is to write us a review and subscribe. I will see you on the next episode. We have some great stuff coming your way. So I will catch you then on Playmakers. <laughs>